listener production. Hey there, I'm Ben Sion Siebert and welcome to today's afternoon episode of The Briefing. Since records began in 1910, the temperature in Australia has risen by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And with every minute rise that occurs, our atmosphere can store more moisture, meaning more rain and more aggressive and frequent floods. It's always difficult to link particular events to the human-induced climate change that we know about, but we certainly saw some devastation in far north Queensland with the floods. So assuming that the floods that we've seen and are seeing right now across Australia are likely to continue, how should we be designing and building our cities so that we can limit the devastation? Well, this is where so-called sponge cities come in. It's also known as water-sensitive urban design, and these building principles involve using soft materials like plants or water catchment techniques instead of hard surfaces like concrete to absorb water rather than repelling it. One of our producers here at The Briefing, Simon Beaton, spoke with Swinburne Professor of Architecture and Urban Design, Marcus White, to find out more about sponge cities and whether these design principles could be better utilised in Australia. To start off, Marcus, what, what is a sponge city? Uh, so sponge city is a term coined by our friend Professor Yu, who's landscape architect in Beijing. It's actually something that's been around for probably a few decades in other names and slightly different forms. But it, it's about trying to basically, instead of having all of the water hitting hard surfaces like asphalt and concrete um, in the suburban cities and going straight down into a stormwater system and out directly into our waterways, you have soft surfaces like you know grasses and um, slow draining, we call them bioretention swales or sort of green infrastructure instead of hard um, grey infrastructure that uh, slows the water down, keeps the water um, where it is for much longer and it slowly seeps its way into the waterways or evaporates before it even gets there. The idea that uh, behind all of this is that you take the pressure off our grey infrastructure, you're doing less damage to our waterways as it's sort of, you know, every time you've got that rushing water, you know, rips a whole heap of the good stuff through out of your water system. Yeah. And looking between the lines there, I'm assuming that a sponge city is, is a good thing, but taking that back a step, like how does what we build our cities for affect how devastating floods are? Yes. All of that, you know, those surfaces, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's not just in the cities, it's, you know, the areas that are upstream. So if you've got farming and land that has dried out and it has, you know, all of that water not being absorbed where it is, it's flowing straight into the streams, that increases the potential of flooding. In the urban areas upstream, if you've got areas that are heavily paved or concreted or, you know, heavily housed with, roofs that are pumping all the water into the water system, all of that puts pressure on downstream. So, you you, you know, you, I mean, you're not going to be able to avoid flooding. It's, it's just part of a natural system, but you can reduce the impact of flooding if you consider all of those things upstream and downstream and, you know, uh, like, and you look at ways that are using this sort of green infrastructure or soft infrastructure or the sort of sponge city type approaches that will reduce the impacts 
downstream. How hard is it to retrofit cities or areas that are already kind of developed to use these concepts? Look, it's it is a quite challenging because you've got yeah you've got existing infrastructure, existing buildings that uh, are built. I mean, you know, you can do stuff that helps that and and you know, there's been a lot of money spent and investment from. Uh, government subsidising putting water tanks into houses, for example. So water tanks are really great in that they take that load that would have been going straight into the stormwater, it goes into a tank and slowly ideally gets used on a garden. But as the weather events are more extreme, those fill up um, and, you know, you're back to the original system of it all goes straight in. But, I mean, there's opportunities at the moment as well and we, we do have a housing crisis which is terrible, but it's an opportunity to go, all right, we're in these existing suburbs that are well-serviced and, um, you know, have been politically challenging and protected carefully by existing owners, there's an opportunity to go, well, actually, we need to densify, we need to provide new housing, and alongside that, there's an opportunity to improve the, the overall system, you know, the urban system, to integrate some of these water-sensitive urban design sponge city strategies. So you might have higher density housing happening, but it's also contributing to fixing up your drainage system and the street um, might be investing in more plants, more trees, more suitable trees that are tolerant to the changing climates. Okay, so it's small things that could still be done to retrofit current large infrastructure that's grey and hard, and then for new developments or new areas that are being built, trying to use more of these concepts from the start where it's a little bit easier to work that in, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. And and I think also importantly, if you're doing new development, to be you know a lot more conscious of what the conditions are environmentally before you start, yes, you can retrofit and you can, I mean, there are schemes where they like in Queensland, where they actually, the government gives over money to help lift houses up, but it's it's not exactly ideal. And so I think in some cases, there'll be areas that will be just not suitable. They'll be uninsurable. And, uh, and I mean, this was the little town that I grew up in, country Victoria, Katamatite, in the 1930s, it had flooded so badly they just decided this is a terrible place to be and they moved the whole town, uh, I think it was like five, 600 metres up the road um, away from the, where the flooding occurred. So, you know, a terrible situation, but unfortunately in some circumstances that will be the case. Now, looking outside of, of Australia, in China or elsewhere in the world, are they using these uh, design concepts more than here in Australia? Look, I think it's it's an area that's growing in many parts of the world. Um, I don't know, we're certainly not behind. I think there are good examples around the world. We've got some fantastic examples. And I think uh, China has, call it an advantage, that they have a very different political system where they can make very large changes to an urban system um, without, they don't have... Uh, third-party objections, um, put it that way. So they can make those kind of very big changes without the, the, those hurdles that we go through, which is, you know, it, it has its problems, but it, it also provides us some really good examples to look at and go, well, you know, 
they did do exactly what they wanted to do there, how successful was it, what worked, what was less successful. And so there's a lot we can learn from some of the work of people like Professor Yu. And one final question for you. Here in Australia, we've obviously very recently seen some pretty devastating floods and that comes off the back of quite a few years of that. How much would using these design concepts and making our cities more spongible uh, reduce the damage from these floods? Because it's such a complex urban system and, you know, it requires these amazingly difficult, complex hydrology models. It's probably beyond my area of expertise to be able to give you any figures, but I know that every bit does make a difference, but it does need to happen throughout the whole system. So it needs to happen upstream, needs to involve changes to the way we think about land management and and learning from you know things like caring for country strategies that our Indigenous populations have used for thousands of years, learning those things, implementing them upstream, learning from the kind of urbanised retrofitting work that's happened in these Asian cities, like uh, the the stuff that's happening in Beijing and um, work by Kong Yang Yu. And all of this will, you know, it's not going to stop flooding, but it's going to reduce it by how much, I'm not exactly sure, but these are things that we need to continue to do research on and and continue to try and and fix because I mean, the, the benefit is even if it doesn't fix the flooding problem it makes the environment much nicer to live in so there's no you know we can't really stuff that up there's no wrong answer there sounds very true thank you so much for your time great to be here thank you That was one of our producers for the briefing, Simon Beaton, speaking with Professor of Architecture and Urban Design at Swinburne, Marcus White. That's all we have time for today. We're keen to hear your feedback on the show. Hit us up on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast, send us a DM and hit follow, please. Sash and the team will be back tomorrow from 6am when they'll be diving into whether the government can tell a supermarket what price it should charge for a bottle of milk and whether it should. Don't miss it. My name's Ben Sion Siebert. Thanks for joining me. Listener.